Good morning. This morning's scripture reading can be found in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Thank you, Brenda. Wow, glad all of you came out on such a cold, snowy day. Uh, able to the Lord's word to our hearts. And let's pray. Lord, let it be your word. We're hungry for you and your word. Meet us right here, O Holy Spirit. Make it alive to our hearts. And uh, hold it up as a mirror to us. We will give you thanks and praise with our lives. Amen. Actors want to break a leg. Gossips love to spill the beans. An angry man has a chip on his shoulder. These are figures of speech, cultural expressions. They're part of the language of every culture. Keep a stiff upper lip. It's a piece of cake. That's water under the bridge. We usually don't know how or when they came about, but figures of speech are colorful. They're used in everyday language. We use them without even without even thinking about them. Those inside the culture know what they mean. He kicked the bucket. There's more than one way to skin a cat. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't want to even know the first way to skin a cat. <laughs> well, It's a figure of speech that's central to our passage today. And it's central to our understanding the passage, too. So this this story is recorded in three of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all each records this story. Now, naturally, we focus on wealth in this story because usually the the subtitles in each of these, these versions, each of these Gospels, and no matter what version it is, The subtitle reads, The Rich Young Ruler. So it's natural for us to focus on wealth 
being the key to the story. Yet really, wealth is secondary in this story. It's not the focus. Okay, let's take a look at this. Matthew introduces this meeting, this event between Jesus and, and this man by telling us, a man came up to Jesus. Mark says very similarly, a man ran up to Jesus. And then as Brenda just read uh, a minute ago, Luke introduces the story to us by saying, a certain ruler asked him. Only Matthew, and this is Matthew incidentally, refers to him as the young man later on in the story. We gather that he's no older than maybe 25 or 26, but we're only told he's rich after Jesus tells him to sell all he has and give it to the poor. This young man's wealth is secondary to this story today. So what is on this young man's mind? He comes running up to Jesus in, in one version, has this question. What's on this young man's mind? Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's got inheriting eternal life on his mind. He, eternal life, it's a phrase we use in church today, churchies, eternal life. Another term for it would be salvation. He has salvation on his mind. He has the idea of entering the coming kingdom of God. Malachi was the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi, the last prophetic ver voice we hear, the Israelites heard. And then it was 400 quiet years. No prophetic voice at all. No prophet arose. That's like from the time the, the English settled in Jamestown to today, 400 quiet years. They're used to having prophetic voices, nothing, nothing. And Malachi prophesied that God would send the Messiah and restore the Davidic kingdom. And this is on their minds. Right? This is what the disciples thought. Oh, we found the Messiah. There. Judas probably was the one who thought that the physical restoration of the kingdom was not going to happen. Um, but this is what's on their mind. It's growing, a growing anticipation. The Messiah and the coming kingdom of God. And this passage is all about the kingdom of God and entering the kingdom of God. Listen to the phrases in this short passage here. Verse 18, to inherit eternal life. Verse 22, we'll have treasure in heaven. Verses 24 and 25 both say to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26, who then can be saved? Verse 30, receive eternal life. Well, the topic of the kingdom of God is vast. And it's going to be the subject of other sermons. It's not the focus for us today. But needless to say, like the desire of this young man... We should desire it. We want to enter the kingdom of God. We would want to live in this coming kingdom of God. 
So having this, this idea of eternal life on his mind, this young man believes Jesus could help him with the answers. Perhaps he thought Jesus was the Messiah. The, the disciples thought that. Well, he was a ruler. Luke tells us that. So perhaps he was seeking a, a position in the kingdom of God. This is conjecture, so we, we don't know that, perhaps. But nonetheless, he did come to answer to, to Jesus seeking an answer. Now, wealth is secondary as a topic in this passage. What's primary is the topic of good. Notice that the topic of good is introduced in the first two verses. Good teacher is how this young man comes to, to Jesus. Now, nothing in that. It's just a very warm, friendly, and respectful greeting. Good teacher. Ah, but it's Jesus who focuses this story and us on the attention to the attention of, of God's attribute of goodness. That is, only God in his unchangeable character is good. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Again, only God in his unchangeable nature is good. Okay, and can interject right here that Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, right? So you pick up on this, I think, that there's an implication here. If only God is good, and this young man addresses Jesus as good, we can infer that Jesus is God. Jesus doesn't deny that. That's what Luke wants his readers to understand. He wants us to understand that. That, 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 that inference, that implication, and the inference is there. It's very strong. Well, Luke wants us to respond, Jesus is God. Listen to him. Obey him. This is our response to the story. Listen to him. Obey him. This is, this is Luke's word to us. Well, a young man had asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus doesn't really answer the question. Right? Not at first, anyway. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. Kind of like our Lord often used parables to teach. Parable will draw you out. You have to respond. Right? There's a, an accepting the story just on its face, or do you go deeper? You diligently seek for a deeper meaning. And that's very much what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to draw out this young man. And giving the answer to the young man, Jesus merely says, you know the commandments. And then he cites only five of them, and very loosely. He doesn't quote them. It's just very loose citing. He doesn't even say do them. He doesn't say keep them. But the young, young man responds in verse 21, all these I have kept since I was a boy. He was very sincere. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus didn't contradict him. Our Lord didn't shame him. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that with us either. But this was the problem. This young man was living life 
by a checklist, a checklist of the Ten Commandments. It's easy to live by a checklist. Do this. I did that. I'm good. Do this. I did that. I'm good. Thou shalt not. I didn't do that. I'm good. We're not transformed by a checklist. By his statement, all these things I have kept, this young man concluded that I'm good, I'm righteous, and that's the heart problem here. You see, if, as Jesus pointed out, if only God is good, then this young man must admit he's broken some, if not all, of the law of God. The right response to reflecting on the law of God is not, I have kept them all. The right response is, what a miserable sinner I am before a holy and good God. The right response is, mm, I'm not good. Before God, the right response is, I'm not good. With honest assessment, I think each one of us here and beyond that, no one can keep the Ten Commandments in their thought life. Somewhere our thoughts come out in our speech, in our actions. Somewhere we prove ourselves not to be good. Paul states in Romans 7, Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. Law was given to show us our sin, not as a checklist, it's to show us we're not good. Okay, do you see that this passage is about being good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's not about wealth. Wealth has yet to be mentioned in this, in this passage. Well, a young man had a common perspective of the time common perspective 2,000 years ago. In fact, that's a common perspective still by many today. And that is, there are things we must do to earn entry into eternal life. We, things we must do to enter into God's kingdom. This, this is a perspective very much like a balance. Like We're standing before the Lord and uh, the judgment seat of God on that final day, and he says, okay, here's the balance in front. I'm going to put your good things here and all your bad, wicked stuff here. The good outweighs the bad, you're in. The bad outweighs the good, uh-oh. Well, that's a very wrong perspective. Very wrong perspective. That's what the common thought was. In the day of Jesus, it's a common thought today, even in the church. If there is a scale, it's more like God's holy, righteous goodness on this side and our goodness here. And we don't flip the scale. I mean, that scale doesn't budge. You can't even put your finger on it. Our good and righteousness always falls way short of God. 
Well, then we get back to verse 22, and that's where our Lord does tell him what to do in order to inherit eternal life. In verse 22, he says, sell all you have, give it all to the poor, and follow me. Now, it's a point of irony here. You've got to see the irony in these stories. That's, that's very important. When you lack something, you would normally think that you should get more, right? Because you're lacking. And not give away all you have. If you give, all away, you give away all you have, wouldn't you be lacking a whole lot more? Well, that's a point of irony here. And our, our Lord usually does not require any of his followers to give all they have. He, he hasn't required, to the best of my knowledge, anyone here to give all that they have to the poor to follow him. Why here? Why does, why does our Lord require that this young man give all he has? This young ruler may have been willing to give half of his wealth away. If you're a billionaire, and you give half your wealth away, you have $500 million left. That works for me. Only answer is, God wants our complete devotion. That's the answer here. God wants our complete devotion. Let's look at the first two of the Ten Commandments. First one, you shall have no other gods before me. To paraphrase the second one, you shall not have idols in place of me or before me. God wants our complete devotion. That's the point he's making here. It's sad, though, this young man's goodness wouldn't let him give up his idol of wealth. Holding fast to his riches was an indication that he valued them more than God and that his wealth was an idol. And therefore, he broke the second commandment. And therefore, he was not good. He was devoted to his wealth. It was his goodness that kept him from even seeing his idol. So you see, it may be hard for a wealthy person, but it is impossible for a good person to inherit eternal life. What was this young man lacking? We get to that point. Okay, he was lacking entrance to the kingdom of God, but what was he lacking that prevented him enter the kingdom of God. The clue is in verse 22. Give it all to the poor. That's the clue for the reader to understand. We're to understand from that phrase that he lacked mercy and grace. Mercy and grace are at the heart of God's goodness. God alone is good. Deuteronomy is full of laws reflecting God's compassion to the poor and the oppressed, the heart of God. The book of Ruth is centered on Ruth, a widow, a foreigner, a stranger, 
poor. And Boaz, a man of God, after God's heart, here he was. He obeyed, thankfully, and he didn't, he didn't harvest his field to the edge. That was part of the law. Have a heart, God's heart of compassion for the poor. Ruth was able to survive because she could go into Boaz's field and pick from the edges and, and from where he had already harvested because by, by the law, he was not allowed to go back and, and clear the field completely. He had to leave something for the poor. That reflects God's heart. And that's what we're to understand here. Those who are in the kingdom of God must reflect God's heart. They must reflect the compassion, the mercy and grace of God. And ultimately, it's sad, but this young man's goodness blocked him from accepting the Lord's invitation. Come, follow me. That's the Lord's invitation. It's personal. He gives it to each one. Each one of us has felt, has known a personal invitation from God. Come, follow, follow me. All right, now we get to verse 25. This is the heart of this passage. This is where we find the figure of speech. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, and I think at this point we should set straight a common teaching. Um, common teaching out there is that the eye of a needle was a door in a gate to the entrance of Jerusalem or to the entrance of any city. A small door. In ancient times, at dusk, the city gates were closed. They were sealed to prevent raid, raids and attacks on the city at night. Um, and the problem with the teaching that there was a small door in the city gate is that there is absolutely, absolutely no historical evidence or reason for such a door in ancient times. Um, it would be a great analogy. The analogy that, that, that's often taught today is that when the gates are shut, you have the door open, the small door that allows people to, to come in and to leave uh, the city, uh, but no armies can come in. And it, it would be a, a great picture of a camel being unloaded, unburdened of all the wealth and goods that it has and forced to its knees to uh, crawl underneath, very much like a, a wealthy man giving up his, his, his riches and humbly on his knees coming to Christ. The problem is, there's no such door. It, it, that didn't happen. Gates were built with purpose. And primary purpose was defense. Think of... Think of the Israelite spies in Jericho. The gates were, were, were shut. It was at night. They couldn't get out. So they were let down in a basket over the wall. There was no little door in that gate. So 
If this is not an analogy, a word picture here, um, it really is a figure of speech. And it's a figure of speech, meaning it's not possible. Kind of like in today's, with today's uh, uh, language, uh, it, it is easier for a leopard to change its spots than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We are the outsiders looking into this, this Hebrew, this Israelite culture 2,000 years ago. We're looking into their language, um, into, into their figure of speech to, to get an understanding. And that leads us to a dilemma. In verse 24, Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, but if that figure of speech means it's impossible, then... Verse 25 makes it sound as if it is impossible for a rich person to enter in. How can this be? Is it very hard or is it impossible? Well, here, here we go with another irony. Right? And this is the kingdom of God is, is wonderful with the irony, right? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. That, that's irony. Well, here it is. Here's another point of irony. In this story, most, you could say many, but probably most Jews in Jesus' day would have said this young man was good. He was blessed by God. His wealth was not ill-gotten, right? The ill-gotten gains of the tax collectors, ooh, you know, that, he's a sinner because that's ill-gotten. No, his wealth was seen as a sign of God's blessing. He probably tithed, probably... You know, they have the, the uh, uh, outside the temple, you had to bring your tithes, and, and people could see that. He probably was generous. His wealth was seen as a sign of God's blessing and his righteousness before God. And yes, that is the health and wealth gospel. <laughs> um, if you're healthy and wealthy, then that's evidence you're right before God. You earn the blessings of God. In other words, you're a good person. And Job's friends argued this to Job. Look, you lost everything. You were a wealthy man. You lost everything. You even lost your health. Look at you, miserable wretch in the dust that you are. That's a sign that you've sinned. A good person does good in order to get rewards is the underlying premise behind the health and wealth gospel. And that's not... That is not the teaching of Scripture. That's not the teaching here. Um, the teaching here is um, it is hard for, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But let's clear up this dilemma. In verse 24, the rich to whom Jesus is referring, of whom Jesus is referring, are the rich in general. It is, generally speaking, hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. But the rich, in verse 25, he really means one who is rich because he is good. Let's put it this way. Verse 25 and, and verses 25, 24 and 25 might best be understood as, it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, but it is impossible for a good person to earn his way into the kingdom of God. Did you get that? 
it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, but it is impossible for a good person to earn his way into the kingdom. And that's the reason why the, the disciples exclaim in verse 26, who then can be saved? Right? Their thought was, he's a good Jew. If it's impossible for him, who can be saved? And Jesus answers that, that question in verse 27, what's impossible with men? What he means is, it is impossible to be good enough to earn your way into the kingdom of God. That scale, that scale doesn't exist. Only in your minds, only in your hearts, you are hopeful that scale is there, but it is not. Jesus says it, it, it is only possible to enter by God's mercy and grace. That's what's possible. By mercy, by God's mercy and grace comes God's forgiveness. Only forgiven people find entry into God's kingdom. Last week, Pastor Kevin pointed out that Jesus began his earthly ministry by proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You look in Matthew chapter 4. That was his first message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then shortly after that, in Matthew 5, actually Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we get the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord's teaching. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount is a description, an understanding of living in the kingdom of God here and now. The Beatitudes, if you wonder what what they are, well, they are a description of the kingdom of God here and now, the kingdom of God at hand. Listen to the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In short, this means... Blessed are those who are not blinded by their own goodness so that they can see their sin and the idols and turn to God for forgiveness. That would give us an understanding in light of today's passage. The outcome of being poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit, they will enter the kingdom of heaven here and now. Consider the second beatitude. Blessed, blessed are those who mourn. Well, that means the understanding should be blessed are those who mourn their sins, for they shall be comforted. That is, they will know God's forgiveness. It's exactly what this young man was, was seeking. Eternal life, entry into God's kingdom is by God's mercy and grace alone, not by earning merits, not by being good. You can't even be good enough. That's me just down. Oh, I'm good enough. You can't be good enough. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Of course, Let's look at this, the application of, of this passage to our lives today. 
the idea that people are good permeates our society, right? It's a big reason why it's difficult to even share the gospel. People think they are good. You can't tell a person who thinks he or she is good that he's not good. Consider American Idol, right? And all the devastated participants who are told they're not good. Oh, I'm good. No, you're not. America's got talent, but you don't. They're devastated. They, they truly believe they're good, like our rich young ruler in this story. We have best-selling books. I'm okay, you're okay. When bad things happen to good people, all the self-help books, all the books, the psychologists, the counselors, all the like, and the like, they're, they're trying to get us to focus on ourselves. Their message, you are a good person. You're good people. In schools, our children are indoctrinated with the idea that they are good. They're no losers. Everybody gets a participation trophy. Wonderful. Everybody has a full wall of trophies. The focus in school is on self-esteem. For the past 30 years, with the top 16 industrialized nations, students from the U.S. have tested first for how well they thought they've done in math and science and have actually tested last. Oh, they have healthy self-esteem. They think they're good. But the testing says, no, they're not. But that's not what they, they believe. They believe they're good. Makes it very hard. Makes it very hard to say, no, you're not good. Schools teach that there's no absolute truth. Each person defines what is good. And that's, that's a, a very difficult subject because it's beyond just the laws here. It's now, it now gives each person the right and authority, the belief that they, they set their standard. They set the standard of good. But what can we do? Well, we can start, we can start by learning, relearning the Ten Commandments and teaching them to our children. Um, and not as a checklist. Every generation has trouble passing the faith on to their children. That's what happened throughout the Old Testament. The stories, they get it. They do well. They repent. They turn back to God. They're blessed. Next generation falls away. It's very consistent. We have trouble passing our faith down. We tend to pass down rules and regulations, the checklist. The Ten Commandments are in the Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't done in, you know, the book's not closed and done away with. The Ten Commandments reflect who God is. It's the moral law. When Christ came by his death, by his resurrection, he did away by his sacrifice. He did away with the temple and the Old Testament sacrificial system. He did away with the ceremonial law. 
But God's moral law stands because it reflects who God, God is. And that's reflected in the Ten Commandments. So teaching them not as a checklist of do's and don'ts, we all probably fall under the, um, the category at one time of looking at them as, as a, a checklist, but keeping them, keeping them is supposed to be an expression of our faith, thankful living, not focused on them, but focused on pleasing our Lord before us. Ten Commandments show us who we really are as sinners. They're the reflection. They're the mirror that, that's held to us. And who God is in his nature, good, holy, and righteous. Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, writes, The law is our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. I can attest to that in my testimony. It was the law that the, the moral code instilled in me by my parents that protected me through college while I was seeking God. And it was the law. Why? 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 Why should I not do this? Why? It was the law that led me to Christ. Well, the Ten Commandments should rightly also inform our consciences. We should have healthy and proper shame. There's wrong shame and our world, our, our psychologists, all the self-help books say, do away with shame completely. But there is a healthy shame. We ought not do this. Right? This is not good. We ought not stick our hand in the fire. There's a healthy and proper guilt. guilt a proper guilt or sorrow. We have the sorrow for sinning. The sorrow that leads us to repentance. Lord, forgive me. I didn't mean to do that. Paul talks about the struggle. It's okay. God knows our sin nature. He knows it's a struggle. But we can respond better. Several years ago, um, I worked at a, a ministry to men with addiction. There was a young man there, 25 years old. 25 years old. He'd already spent seven years living on the streets as a homeless man and three years in jail. You can do the math. That means he walked out of his parents' house when he was 15. And two months into his stay there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. His life was, was transformed. And he, we, would, we would meet, we would talk, and he said, I say things that I regret. I don't mean it. You know, it comes out. I say, I've done some, some things that are hurtful. He said to him, before you accepted Christ, that crossed your mind? Oh, no, I can say anything. I can do anything. He said and did anything to his family. Not a single one of them wanted him around. No conscience there. That's what transform the conscience, developing the conscience. All of a sudden, I ought not to, I did it. I ought not do it. So, well, that's the Holy Spirit within you. That's the conscience. That's the point. 
where God's spirit meets your spirit and can direct you. How you respond is very important. You can, kind of like Jiminy Cricket there, no, I don't want to listen to you. Or you can say, yes, Lord. He knows. He knows our shortcomings. He knows we're not good. There are times we will mess up. Ah, but what does it mean to be blameless? Right? Blamelessness is not sinlessness. Job was blameless, but he was not sinless. Being blameless means when you know you've done something wrong, sinful, and that could be against God or against another person. Make it right. Make it right. Well, that's what a healthy and proper guilt will do uh, with our consciences. It, it will help us to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It will also allow us to let go of the compartments of our lives. Men are very typically bad holding on to these little compartments. I think today women are coming right up there. Kind of like uh, years ago, it was always the, the boys, the teenage boys who had high insurance rates and the girls had low insurance rates. Well, now I think the, probably the teenage accident level is, is about equal. Uh, so I think we hold on to these compartments, these idols in our lives, right? Pornography, um, the, the three areas. Each of us has an area of, of weakness. When we close our eyes at night, our minds will naturally drift to one of three areas. And this is not to, to judge anyone. This is just to know yourself. Your mind is naturally going to drift to lust of the flesh or Lust of the eyes, materialism, consumerism, or the pride of life. God knows this. God knows this. And that's where he touches us, at the point of our conscience, to guide us, to walk rightly, to guide us in living forgiven lives. In order to teach the next generation and also to witness to our friends, our family, effectively today, we have to live like forgiven people, not like good people. We have to live thankfully in response to God's grace and mercy to us. All right, I think we can conclude this message with the story of Zacchaeus. And how convenient. All you have to do is turn the page. It's in Luke chapter 19. The story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a Jew. But Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was also a tax collector. He was wealthy by ill-gotten gains, unlike, unlike the rich young ruler who had his wealth by good means, blessing. Zacchaeus got his wealth through usury, uh, overcharging fellow Jews for taxes, 
Zacchaeus knew he was a sinner. Rich young ruler. Everybody probably told him he was good. Zacchaeus? Everybody told him he was a sinner. You're a tax collector, you're a sinner. You're ostracized. So he knew that. Like the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus sought out Jesus. He came, he heard Jesus coming by, he climbed a tree. Like the rich young ruler, Jesus gave Zacchaeus an invitation. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. The invitation. Now Zacchaeus' response contrasts with that of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was sad. He went away. But Zacchaeus' response is in verse 8 in chapter 19. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. Wow. Jesus didn't require Zacchaeus to give anything away. In fact, except for inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house, there was nothing he told Zacchaeus to do. Zacchaeus could have refused Jesus' invitation. No thanks. I'm good. I see you there. Just like the rich young ruler. No thanks. I'm good. But Zacchaeus freely and thankfully responded to the Lord's mercy and grace. Zacchaeus freely let go of his idol of wealth. With humility, he became a reflection of of God's goodness. The outcome is found. The rich young ruler walked away without receiving the assurance he was looking for. But Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus' outcome. Jesus said to him in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus knew he was forgiven, and he knew he was going to enter the coming kingdom of God. Zacchaeus was transformed. It is not impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Zacchaeus did. Ah, But it is impossible for a good person to enter. A good person says, God owes me heaven. I've earned it. I'm good. Forgiven person says, God doesn't owe me anything. But he's merciful and gracious to me, and I am thankful for his forgiveness. Right? Rich young ruler says, I'm good. I, I should earn entry into the kingdom of heaven. Zacchaeus says, God doesn't owe me anything. But God is merciful and gracious to me, and I'm thankful for his forgiveness. And he showed it. May we have the humility to live our lives like forgiven and thankful people. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, we long to, when we look into your face, to uh, 
respond now with thankfulness in our hearts to your mercy and your grace. We long, O oh Lord, we long, O oh Lord, to know with certainty. Um, and we give you thanks for the pledge of your Holy Spirit giving us that certainty of your forgiveness, of your entry into your kingdom. We very, very much want to respond by living as forgiven people before you. Thank you, O oh Lord, for this, your word. 